Hi, everyone. This is Aaron Cohen. I get questions all the time about when the next season is coming out, what the next special episode will focus on, and what other projects we have in the works. Every month, I send out an update with these details, and it typically includes some audio excerpts of what I'm working on. Join us as a contributing member of the Embrace Everything community by supporting us on Patreon for just $5 a month. And you can follow the progress of our journey creating these Mahler programs. There's a Patreon link in the show notes for this episode and on our website. I hope you'll join us. And thanks. Season 1 of Embrace Everything, The World of Gustav Mahler was made possible by a generous grant from the Kaplan Foundation. You can find a complete list of pieces and performers featured in this episode on our website, theworldofgustavmahler.org. In this episode, we'll explore the fourth and final movement of Mahler's First Symphony, which is also the last episode of our season. I'm Aaron Cohen. I hope you enjoy it. Mahler looked to Beethoven for inspiration in the fourth and final movement of the First Symphony. We find our wayfaring hero in trouble. Mahler tells us this. Every time he raises his head above the surging waves of life, he is struck down again by the blows of fate. So what does Mahler mean by fate? Beethoven was beginning to go deaf when he wrote his Fifth Symphony. And the famous theme of the fifth has been mythologized to represent fate knocking on his door. Music professor Christine Lee Jangaro of Los Angeles City College. This idea of fate being not what we planned, not what we were ready for, but the thing that kind of catches us unawares and the thing that tests us. Because we can't prepare for everything, right? It's, it's the things that we're not ready for that really, really knock us down. So I think fate in this musical way, both for Beethoven and for Mahler, is the sort of catch-all term for these things that are waiting out there for us. Many of Beethoven's greatest works were written after he lost his hearing. And Mahler, too, had to overcome serious challenges. There was abuse in his family. And early on, he struggled to make ends meet financially. But even more than that, from the moment he was born, Mahler was surrounded by death. He was one of 14 children, and he witnessed six of his brothers pass away before he was even 20. The fourth movement captures Mahler's fury as he challenges fate head-on. A horrifying scream opens the final movement, in which we now see our hero altogether abandoned with all the sorrows of this world to the most terrible of battles. Originally, this movement was titled From the Inferno to Paradise. Marilyn McCoy. It really does sound hellish at the beginning. It's a super portrayal of hell. He wants to make this kind of big whirlwind of sound. And it actually kind of revs up in this kind of tornado way. 
Mahler will toggle back and forth between the dark sound of F minor, representing hell, and later the triumphant brighter sound of D major, representing paradise. Music professor Christine Lee Jangaro. Your average listener does not have perfect pitch, isn't going to be able to say like, oh, how interesting, F minor. You know, that's <laughs> that's not going to be something that people are going to articulate in that way. But it is an unexpected choice, and it does depict this darker feeling to it. So this struggle between these two key areas, this is a sort of elemental struggle. The struggle for life and death, portrayed on a grand musical canvas. Throughout this struggle, Mahler gives extra prominence to the brass section. Jennifer Montone, principal horn of the Philadelphia Orchestra. I think the last movement is by far the most fun and the most like crazy and physically exhilarating. The way that it sort of feels a little bit like an athletic experience, like you feel physically exhausted and, you know, it's that type of thing. As the storm dies down, the music goes in a different direction. Mahler's great friend and confidant Natalie Bauer-Lechner tells us this. The idea for the divinely lovely melody of the violins in the last movement came to Mahler during an evening party at the Stagemanns while supper was being served. He went into the next room to write it down and found himself in a full flood of inspiration. Here's the melody that overwhelmed Mahler at the dinner party. Dr. Michael Tilson Thomas. This is a particular kind of sentimental music, rather unusual in Mahler's overall output. The piece it most closely resembles is an earlier piece still called Blumina, which at one point or another was considered to be included in this piece, in the first symphony. Blumina was the surviving fragment of a pageant written for a summer health spa. And it's a very evocative, sentimental piece, similar in quality to this theme that's played by the strings. The title Blumina means flower piece. Here's what it sounds like.
Originally, this was the second movement of the first symphony. After three performances, Mahler decided to remove it. Permanently. But as Michael Tilson Thomas pointed out, there are still echoes of it in this part of the fourth movement. insertion of earlier compositions is a way of pulling in memories and dreams from his youth. Marilyn McCoy. There's no question that it's autobiographical. And there are many things that were struggles for him, especially at this time during the whole life of the symphony, like love affairs, you know, really passionate love affairs, especially the ones um, around the songs of the Wayfarer in 1883, 84, 85, Johanna Richter. And by 1888, when Mahler was finishing the first symphony, there was another great love in his life, Marion von Weber. She was married, an older woman with three children. Mahler's love for her inspired the fervent burst of inspiration that helped him complete the symphony. Mahler wanted Marion to run away with him, but she couldn't bring herself to do it. Devastating breakups with people that, when he was very young and he was very deeply in love with. Mahler believed that love would ultimately help him rebel against death which explains why there's a love theme mixed in with the blows of fate. That love theme reaches no resolution, actually. Mahler originally called this symphony Titan, a title he removed at the same time he removed the Blumina movement. But the title has stuck. The symphony is still known as the Titan. One of Mahler's favorite books was called Titan, a novel by the German author Jean-Paul. But Mahler's title has more to do with figures of great strength, characters like Prometheus, Atlas. Christine Lee Jengaro says Mahler was looking for something very specific. Someone who was strong enough to withstand the beating of this last movement. But there is a glimmer of hope. Listen closely to this passage. Mahler plants a musical seed here. Mahler will transform this into one of his breakthrough moments, a little later. But first... More drama. Marilyn McCoy. It's sort of like a Wagnerian opera in one movement or something. There's, there's kind of like this operatic sense of drama going on. The Titanic battle continues. And again, Mahler inserts a reference to one of his earliest compositions. Right here. A decade earlier, when Mahler was a student at the conservatory in Vienna, he wrote this piece. The first work in which I really came into my own as Mahler was a fairy tale for choir, soloists, and orchestra, The Song of Lamentation. I numbered that work 
Opus 1. Mahler was a teenager when he began this massive work, which has all the hallmarks of his unique style. His masterful use of the brass section gives us a premonition of how he'll use the brass later on. It took Mahler two years to complete. The piece was entered in a conservatory competition, but didn't win. It wasn't premiered until more than 20 years after it was composed. Towards the end of the piece, it contains this part. Speed it up a little bit, and it sounds very similar to this part in the fourth movement. There is a transition that gave me a lot of trouble. Again and again, the music had fallen from brief glimpses of light into the darkest depths of despair. Now an enduring triumphal victory had to be won. Mahler will give us a musical breakthrough here, a climax to take us from hell to paradise, and he'll use a spectacular D chord to do it. My D chord, however, had to sound as though it had fallen from heaven, as though it had come from another world. This triumphant moment isn't quite what it seems. Jennifer Montone of the Philadelphia Orchestra says the fourth movement throws us a curveball. The fourth has an interesting aspect where the end comes back twice. You know, you think you've really made it and you've accomplished something and you're very, you know, you're feeling very proud and very, you know, and then all of a sudden it just like erodes and falls apart. And then there's this soft thing. Victory slowly slips away. Mahler had his reasons for giving us a false triumph. My intention was to show a struggle in which victory is furthest from the protagonist just when he believes it closest. This is the nature of every spiritual struggle, for it is by no means so simple to become or to be a hero. We find ourselves back in the world of nature and fanfares. the rest of the symphony, musical elements from the first movement will intermingle with the fourth movement material. Christine Lee Jangaro. And what that does is it really unifies the structure of the work in a beautiful musical way, almost like you can find elements of the other movements in all movements, like you can look at a human cell and find the DNA for the entire organism, that kind of idea. The orchestral writing is sparse here. Just a few minutes earlier, the whole orchestra was going full tilt. 
Michael Tilson Thomas says Mahler was very deliberate in managing his instrumental resources. And his process, a process which was still very much continuing in the course of the writing of the First Symphony, was to figure out how to eliminate all extraneous notes so that the effect of the harmonies, the plangency, the pungency of the harmonies would be there, but by eliminating all unnecessary notes, there was a lot more space, and that allowed parts of the music to have a kind of vulnerability. The big, loud, climactic uh, cavalry charges, whatever, that are so much there in the music, uh, have greater significance because there are such long stretches of quiet music. There's a stillness about this music that's almost meditational, as if we've decided to put aside the battle of fate and simply gaze at the world with childlike wonder. Mahler was a master of contrast. Bill Hudgens of the Boston Symphony Orchestra. He's virtuosic in the the way that he manages to include such drastically different emotions in his symphonies, that he wears the emotions on his sleeve, and they're all there, and then he takes them really to the extreme. When he gets exuberant, it's, it's just crazy exuberant sometimes, and then when he gets sad, it's really death-like a lot of times. And then everything in between. And certainly I think he's one of the, the most emotional composers that, or maybe, maybe a better way is to say that the emotion is so aurally really present in his music that you can't miss it, really. He just goes ahead and shows it. I mean, he's showing us some of his most intimate thoughts, clearly. art, as I see it, must always be the ultimate liberation from and transcendence of sorrow. This aim is achieved in my first, but in fact the victory is won only with the death of my struggling titan. The first symphony's final section will eventually build to a wild climax. Music professor Marilyn McCoy. The end of the first is so triumphant. Like, I would never have thought that our hero has died. (laughs) That's the last thing that I would have thought happens. But death doesn't have to be about defeat if you've lived life with purpose, held to the values that were most important to you. Christine Lee Jangaro. Going to death willingly with your eyes open and saying this is for something, 
I think that's something that Mahler's getting at in this. A second interpretation of what Mahler might mean by the death of a struggling titan is hinted at by something Mahler's friend Natalie Bauer-Lechner had stressed. One of the things that Bauer-Lechner talks about is the idea of the hero of this being a young man, right? When he starts the journey, he is a young man. And what's interesting is that coming out of this struggles of this final movement especially, perhaps what he loses and, and what dies, actually, is this youth. And with the loss of youth, there is a transformation. Even if you come out on the other side of this, unscathed in body, you have lost something. But ultimately, at the end, there's this feeling of, I won finally, right? I came to this conclusion at the end where I was triumphant over my fears. I helped serve the greater good. There's a lot of beauty in that. As the moment of death approaches, whether a real death or a symbolic one, we take one last look at our hero. Bringing us full circle, Mahler repeats the most dramatic passage from the first movement before the grand breakthrough of the finale, when our hero is accorded a huge farewell. Mahler put it this way. Again and again he gets knocked on the head by fate whenever he appears to pull himself out of it and become its master. Only in death, after he has overcome himself, does he achieve the victory. Magnificent victory chorale. Here's the victory chorale, the final breakthrough, taking us to paradise. piece, Mahler asks the entire horn section to stand up while playing. Jennifer Montone, principal horn of the Philadelphia Orchestra, says he writes this into the score. It's kind of the only piece I can think of that has that happen. It's sort of crazy to do that. It's a blast to do that. Mahler's titan triumphantly storms into heaven. And in the end, Mahler uses death to give us a blazing celebration of life.
You've been listening to Embrace Everything, the world of Gustav Mahler. I'm your host, Aaron Cohen. I also wrote and produced the program. James Lurie was the voice of Gustav Mahler, and Laura Grackmans was the voice of Natalie Bauer-Lechner. I had editing assistance from Jamie Katz, Paul Thomason, Marin Lazian, Will Berger, and John Schaefer. The program was mixed by Rick Kwan. Engineers included Leszek Wojciech and Nariko Okabe at Carnegie Hall Studios, Ben Elman at the Radio Foundation, Colin Ashmead-Bobbitt at WBEZ in Chicago, Dennis Bentley at KWMU in St. Louis, and Anna Kunzio at the ORF in Vienna. A very special thank you to Lena Kaplan and Marcella Silva at the Kaplan Foundation. Thanks also to Lisa Janig, Taryn Lott, Pascal Wime, Michelle Andre Lanou, Amanda Olszewski, and Marian van den Buchen, all of whom helped organize interviews for this program. Thanks as well to Brad Garten at Prentice Hall at Columbia University, Irene Zedlacher at Bard College, and especially to Marilyn McCoy. I had terrific support from Jennifer Barnett, Jason Starr, Lou Smoley, Larry Josephson, Kathleen Drowen, Demi Williams, and Craig Kaluza. If you've enjoyed the music you've heard in our programs, a complete list of pieces and performers can be found on our website, theworldofgustavmahler.org. Until next time, I'm Aaron Cohen. <laughs>